0: Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And the first thing I'd like to do is to thank some dear friends of the salon namely, Charlie H., Mark T., Zachary M., long-time friend of the salon, Max T. And once again, Nexus 112 have uh, all sent us some of their hard-earned cash to help with the uh, expenses associated with these podcasts. And while I don't have time to cover this story in detail until next week's program, I have uh, taken the liberty of passing along part of your donations this week to Jonathan Ott, whose uh, house and laboratory were recently lost to fire. So, Charlie, Mark, Nexus 112, Zachary, and Max, hey, thanks again for your support, and uh, I'm sure that Jonathan also appreciates it. Well, here we are again on what has come to be known as Terrence Day. And while ten years ago today, April 3rd in the year 2000, the worldwide psychedelic community was deeply saddened by the news of his death, Today, the pain has receded and, uh, in a way, been replaced with the joy that we feel as we recall all of the little pieces of brain candy that he left behind for us to enjoy. Originally, I was uh, going to play a collage of my favorite sound bites from past podcasts of Terrence, but uh, the truth is that, like you, I'm still searching for talks of his that I haven't heard before, and uh, this happens to be one of them. I can't say exactly when it was uh, recorded, but uh, he does mention that he had only moved away from California about eight months earlier, so uh, you can uh, probably figure it out if you want to track that down. And I also uh, can't say exactly where I got this recording, I'm afraid, since uh, I've been receiving download links via email, Facebook, Twitter, tribe.net, thegirlreport.com, a comment or two on our uh, salon blog, or uh, from some other source. And uh, the problem, of course, is that uh, I have no organized filing system for this. Uh, <laughs> none at all. You see, uh, I'm still considering this podcasting thing a hobby, and uh, so I'm being careful to not make it feel like work. And uh, filing and organizing just seem like work to me. And so, before I say anything else, I first want to thank the person that, uh, for now, I'll have to call the unknown saloner. And uh, that's the person who sent me the recording we are about to hear. And I really feel terrible about not being able to thank them right now because uh, I found this talk to be almost as fresh as if it was recorded just last night. Uh, before today, if somebody asked me where uh, where to start if they'd never heard a Terrence McKenna recording before, I always pointed at them to uh, podcast number 28, which begins the Valley of Novelty series. But uh, from now on, I'm going to suggest the talk that we're about to hear. I really enjoyed it. Now, I'll warn you that uh, when he first began to uh, talk about the stoned apes coming down from the trees, uh, I almost stopped listening myself because uh, I thought I'd heard it all before. But something kept me there, because uh, this time the story was somehow sounding fresher, uh, fuller, or maybe it was just more completely thought through this time. But uh, once he gets his basic hypothesis out of the way, uh, boy, the good bard gets on a roll that I can't wait to hear again, which is what I'm going to do along with you right now. And uh, since this is a celebration of Terrence Day, I decided to play the entire recording rather than put the Q&A in the next podcast. So uh, strap yourself in and get ready for a two-hour ride with our favorite bard, Terence McKenna. Well,
1: I like to lead with good news, so uh, let me assure you that at no point this evening will I read from or quote the poet Rumi.
2: <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: uh, It's a pleasure to be in Sacramento, it's a pleasure to be in California. i lived here for about 30 years before moving out about eight months ago. Lived over in Occidental, so I sort of feel like this is a hometown congregation. You may have seen the story in the bee this morning. Uh, It was a reasonable detailing of my theory of evolution. I noticed that one expert wouldn't even give his name to allow his no comment to have attribution. (laughs) Gentlemen, this is no way to behave in the face of an ideological revolution. Anyway, um, and plus it isn't even my weirdest idea. Uh, but that that was left unmentioned, thankfully, in the article. But since the article dealt so specifically with evolution, and because that probably is my best candidate for entree into any kind of respectability, something I crave intensely in <laughs> every atom of my body. I thought I would uh, discuss it with you this evening and try and make it seem a little less absurd than, uh, than my critics might make it seem. First of all, let me lay out for you the, uh, the nature of the problem. Right now the nature of the problem is finding the damn phone and shutting it off. <laughs> <laughs> No, the nature of the problem is (laughs) that uh, evolutionary theory tells us that we are some kind of advanced animal of some sort, and science has waged a noble struggle over the past 150 years to secure this position against all attacks by orthodox religious thinking, and yet there is, uh, uh, after it's all said and done, the sense that if we are an animal we are a very, very peculiar sort of animal. Indeed, a unique animal, an animal capable of language and coordinated planning, uh, an animal not bound to a particular uh, social or sexual style. We have monogamous human societies, polygamous societies, this is very different from animals. We have poetry, we have mathematics, we have drama, a whole spectrum of effects that is far from anything that we find in animal organization. And this problem has fascinated me for a long long time as it's fascinated a lot of people uh, because, obviously, it's a great embarrassment to the theory of evolution that it can't account for human consciousness. Because, after all, human consciousness produced the theory of evolution. <laughs> so, you see, it's a significant failure there. Uh, so... Uh, Obviously, if you accept the basic rules of the evolutionary game, which are that there is a random mutation, which means gene drift, mixing of genes through sexual reproduction, uh, cosmic rays which cause birth defects and mutations, this sort of thing, and natural selection. And these two factors, natural selection, and, uh, and mutation are sufficient to account for praying mantises, chipmunks, tropical rainforests, but not us. And the reason is that we emerge too quickly from the background of the rest of ordinary nature. Uh, in the space of about two billion years, the human brain doubled in size. And Lumholtz who is an orthodox evolutionary biologist calls this uh, the most dramatic transformation of the of a major organ of a higher animal in the entire history of life and it happened to us it happened to that very organ that is responsible for the theory of evolution so what extraordinary confluence of um, Factors could have come together there to take essentially an arboreal monkey, an ape of some sort that had been at an evolutionary climax in the canopy of the rainforest for a couple of million years. What extraordinary set of factors could then set that creature marching down the road toward... You know, Elvis, the internet, Bill Clinton, and uh, all the rest of it. Well, You would imagine, or I imagined when I first started thinking about this, that there must be some huge edifice of established theory that we have to go up in there and blow up. Surely somebody has has staked out this ground and made some kind of an argument about human consciousness. Well, in terms of science, not, or almost not. I mean, in terms of religion, it's simple. I mean, God made us from the clay of the earth. In terms of science, the best shot is pretty weak soup from my point of view. Here's, here's what science is telling us. That when you throw something, you have to plan because once you let go of whatever it is you're throwing you can no longer control it and so because we were small and weak and hunted in packs we learned to throw like hell at very large on rushing woolly uh, fellow mammals of various sorts and you had to plan your throw consequently we developed brain capacity to do this and had enough left over to invent quantum physics, paint the Mona Lisa, invent the phonetic alphabet, philosophy, religion, and all the rest of it. Uh, In other words, it was the coordination of the hand and the eye to the throwing arm, this is what the orthodox folks tell us, that gave us this extra brain capacity that we sort of then managed into human civilization. Well, notice that this would make the pinnacle of the evolutionary ladder uh, the gum-chewing big-league baseball pitcher. (laughs) because, you know, he can put that pill right across the plate at high speed uh, time after time. As somebody who learned everything they know about sadomasochism in P.E. class, uh, (laughs) I'm not really ready to embrace uh, this theory. It it definitely runs against my paradigm. So, I've built Another story, and it, to my mind, meets the, ob- uh, the objections, answers the question, where did consciousness come from, but instead of doing it very nicely and neatly, it raises in the very act of answering this question, other questions, maybe more closer to home questions that reflect on our social organization, our politics, how we treat each other in the here and now, even with implications for the future. But we'll get to that. For the moment, let me just run through this for you. There's a sort of a basic situation that all theories of evolution have to come to terms with. And this is that our remote proto-hominid, primate, ape, ancestors, uh, lived and developed in Africa. If you have an, a non-African theory of human origin, and there are such things, but e- the evidence is strongly against you, if it were stock I'd sell. Uh, the evidence is pretty strong that whatever happened that brought us out of the animal body it happened in Africa well all animals tend to uh, and plants for that matter tend to reach uh, evolutionary climax and occupy a niche and stabilize in that niche cockroaches, ants achieved this hundreds of millions of years ago and have not changed greatly since. Most of biology is this iterative occupation of a climaxed niche. Very little of biology is the pushing forward into into radical new forms, new species, still rarer, new new genera. Uh, for that there has to be disruption of some sort of the environment and it can be the meandering of a river or an asteroid strike or the retreat of a glacier uh, something which creates open land well for many for five six million years now the African continent has been slowly drying and uh Three million years ago, it was covered by rainforest at the equator from east to west. Uh, slow, and that was the, uh, the environment of the, of the uh, human ancestor types. They were canopy dwelling, they were fruit eating, they ate some percentage of insects, composed their diet, they had a pack signaling repertoire that was fairly complicated by animal standards. And there they were, happily living in the canopy. But Africa began to dry up and they came under nutritional pressure. Now, Simpler animals, insects for example, when their food source is withdrawn, they usually buy the farm. They don't have much flexibility of diet. If you've ever tried to raise caterpillars into butterflies for your children, you know that if you give the caterpillars the wrong leaves, they just can't make any sense out of it and they die. more advanced animals when confronted with dietary pressure or disappearance of ordinary food supplies, before they give up the ghost, they will uh, experiment with other food sources in the environment. Now the reason this isn't normally done is thought, the reason animals are conservative in their food choices It's thought to be a way of avoiding uh, mutational influences in the form of uh, tertiary chemicals, toxins, viruses and things like this that would be in in unusual foods. One of the things that accompanies our acquisition of consciousness is gastronomy, the appreciation of flavor, the approach to food that makes it an art, animals don 't do this they 're just trying to get enough protein to keep the old engines running. The notion of flavoring uh, is counterintuitive to animals, and flavoring 's probably in part a mutagenic influence to our diet when our remote ancestors came under environmental pressure, their environment was shrinking the rainforest was. Being replaced by grasslands and nutritional pressure, their ordinary diet of fruit and insects was being um, restricted. They began exploring this new environment of the grasslands. And this is the era of knuckle walking turning into bipedalism. It's the era of the coordination of binocular vision, so forth and so on. There was a paper published recently, which anticipates my point, but I can't wait to hit you with it. A paper published recently about canopy-dwelling monkeys who only leave the canopy for the acquisition of one particular food. And the food they will come to the ground for and risk predation is mushrooms. So, it seems perfectly reasonable to suggest that our remote ancestors exploring the new environment of the grasslands would have encountered as you would if you were to go to the to the tropics uh, psilocybin containing mushrooms growing in the dung of cattle many. Uh, dung-growing, so-called coprophytic, coprolytic mushrooms produce psilocybin. Among them, stropharia cubensis, which is one of the largest and pandemically distributed of these mushrooms. I'm sure that our early ancestors also tested other kinds of food. They were testing everything. Uh, They were digging for corms with pointed sticks. Uh, And I'm sure there were many ecological and medical disasters as a consequence of this. For instance, uh, the birth control steroids in modern birth control pills are produced by Dioscoria vines grown on plantations in Mexico well Dioscorea is the family of uh, sweet potatoes imagine a, a hungry band of primates that come upon a patch of sweet potatoes that are heavy in these steroids it would raise holy havoc with their reproductive cycle it would interfere with menstruation, ovulation, lactation, fertility and uh, you know human genetic history is the story of many such uh, encounters with mutagenic influences in the environment most of them catastrophic detrimental lethal but in some few cases there would have been uh, solitary results advantages conferred upon the animals that accept these new foods into their food chain and and I want to particularly emphasize psilocybin because I believe it's the key you see we're looking for some kind of factor which could have exploded the human brain size at a rate ten times faster than evolution normally takes place so it's going to be an unusual situation perhaps the need to throw a boulder a distance accurately or perhaps contact with an unusual food item or drug containing plant but it was something unusual if it weren't unusual it wouldn't have taken this planet a billion and a half years to bring forth its first intelligent species well so let's look at psilocybin then in a little more detail it has a number of properties not specifically related to its psychoactivity that make it an ideal candidate for a catalyst for the emergence of consciousness in an advanced animal first of all and at the early stage of human invasion of this new grassland environment proto-hominid invasion I should say Uh, We were testing foods. We would certainly have tested this food. I've seen these things the size of dinner plates in the Amazon after a rain and they are silvery with blue and purple shading. They are the most dramatic thing in the environment whether you know anything about them as as psychoactive agents are not certainly they would have been tested for food. I've seen uh, baboons in Kenya investigating cow pies and flipping them over because beetle grubs nestle underneath them. So cow pies are a natural vector for hungry baboons so that everything is in place. It's, It's trivial to suggest otherwise I would maintain. Okay. The first quality of psilocybin, which isn't specifically related to its psychoactivity, is that in small doses, doses that are the kind you might obtain if you were just sort of eating it along with little roots, grass roots, small bugs, uh, you know, so forth and so on, visual acuity is improved. Specifically, edge detection is improved. Well, now, it seems to me you don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure out that if you're in a highly competitive evolutionary environment in grassland, an environment characterized by large predators hunting cats and also characterized by small ungulate prey, that having an increased sensitivity to edge movement might make the difference... (coughs) between whether or not you live to tell the tale or you become somebody's dinner, or it would certainly make the difference between going home empty-handed and taking dinner home with you. So a factor which enhanced edge detection on those animals accepting that food supply into their food chain, they would have uh, a slightly increased chance of evolutionary success as opposed to the non-psilocybin members of their group. And this increased hunting uh, success would tend to outbreed the non-psilocybin-using members of the group. At slightly higher doses, uh, in highly sexed animals like primates, uh, all alkaloids are what are called CNS stimulants, central nervous system stimulants. That means that they produce arousal and in sexually extremely active animals like primates, arousal means uh, erection, usually in the male, usually followed by hanky-panky. What? anthropologists and primatologists call successful instances of copulation. (laughs) Well, again, what is this? It's a second factor tending to outbreed the non-psilocybin-using members of the population they're now definitely moving to the rear of the parade they don't have as much hunting success they don't have as much food for themselves and their offspring they're not having as much sex so they're not having as many offspring and you know in terms of of rising and falling numbers those that have some allergy prejudice or fear of of the mushroom are, are just being shunted out of the breeding population? Well, at still higher doses, approaching effective doses of 20 milligrams or more, in other words, 4 grams dried and up, or 45 grams wet and up, uh, hunting is out of the question <laughs> sex is something you can consider but it's out of the question and you are basically nailed to the ground in a state of mind which we for all of our sophistication, our logical positivism, our superconducting supercolliders, and all the rest of it haven't a clue as to what it is, what it means, what its implications are. The full-blown psychedelic experience of which we can only speak in in terms of uh, religious hierophany, epiphany, apocatastasis, and all those other great Greek words, uh, ataraxia. You know, in other words, we like it, but we don't understand it. And it is, therefore, uh, the basis for religion. Well, uh, so right there you have a three-step process driven by nothing more than hunger and curiosity that leads remote primate ancestors to a confrontation with what Rudolf Otto called the holy other, the holy, the numinous, the transcendental. And uh, uh, you know this is on slightly less firm ground, but in my own personal experience and having collected psychedelic experiences lifelong, I feel confident in saying that at high doses, psilocybin causes glossolalia. Glossolalia is syntactically structured language-like behavior in the absence of meaning. Uh, Speaking in tongues is what Christian fundamentalists call it, but they don't have a monopoly on it. It's ancient. It occurs in all cultures. It's shamanic. And what it is is it's a kind of neurological seizure where linguistic organization spontaneously is verbalized. No animal does this. It must have something to do with the acquisition of language by human beings. And what I think is going on is that probably language was uh, entertainment long before it was meaning. That it's a kind of tuneless singing. And that having discovered that we could make an almost endless repertoire of small mouth noises, we did this for each other, for amusement, for to uh, pass the time, I mean, God knows there was a lot of it. And (laughs) it it probably was very late in the evolution of this ability that some very tight assed rational type (laughs) said, you know, we could attach a specific meaning to a specific sound, and then every time I made that sound, you'd know what I meant, and then you could go and get it for me. <laughs> you see? <clears throat> it's a sort of, it, it's the, as long as you're up, get me a Grant's theory of language. Uh, so so that's the basic idea, and I I really believe that Sometime in the last 50,000 years, before 12,000 years ago, a kind of paradise came into existence. A situation in which men and women, parents and children, people and animals, human institutions and the land, uh, all were in dynamic balance and not in any primitive sense at all. Uh, language was fully developed. Poetry may have been at its climax. Dance, magic, poetics, altruism, uh, philosophy. There's no reason to think that these things were not practiced as adroitly as we practice them today. And it was under the aegis of the boundary-dissolving influence of psilocybin. We were nomadic. We were breeders and and caretakers of cattle. We worshipped the great goddess. We followed a yearly round in a vast grassland cut by crystal streams that were washing down out of the, the higher altitudes. And we were probably black as your hat for that matter. Uh, and it was great well if it was so great what happened well uh, the very forces which created this situation and you will recall what it was it was the drying of the African continent forcing us out of the trees forcing us to change our diet forcing us to accept a, a dung growing mushroom uh... And there were other factors forcing us into consciousness as well. When we became omnivorous, the first form of consciousness is having the point of view of your prey. Predatory animals have the highest form of animal consciousness, big cats. But it's a consciousness of the exterior world. Psilocybin forced us beyond that into consciousness of the, emi- the imaginal world, the world of the imagination inside our heads, what happened was um, the mushroom faded, the climate changed, what had been everywhere became seasonal, moved into the rain shadows of mountains, uh, became the prerogative of a special class of people called shamans who were like the the designated hitters for dealing with the uh, hyperspace of the mythos. In uh, other words, over millennia, the, the the connection went from available to everyone all the time to ever more tenuous, ever more tenuous, finally faded out entirely. It's even more complicated than that. Because surely people would have, as they saw this happening, make attempts to preserve the mushroom. And in a world without refrigeration, the only effective way to do this is uh, preservation in honey. You can dry mushrooms but in a world without hermetically sealed peanut butter jars drying is a very short-term strategy for preservation the only thing which will really work is preservation in honey. The problem there is that honey itself, especially aboriginal honeys, which have a lot more water in them than what you get in those little plastic bears at the A&P. <laughs> uh, aboriginal honeys are very runny. And so what do they do? They themselves have the capacity for turning into a psychoactive substance. Alcohol. But alcohol promotes a completely different set of cultural values and attitudes than psilocybin. Uh, Psilocybin is a boundary-dissolving hallucinogen. Uh, uh, Mead alcohol uh, gives an enhanced uh, sense of verbal acuity in the presence of lowered sensitivity to social cues. Uh, In other words, uh, one can make an ass of oneself. But now I want to backtrack for a minute. I will return to this thing about the loss of the mushroom, but there's something that I want to go over with you that's really important in all this to me. And that is, this isn't simply the story of how an intoxicant promoted consciousness and then we fell into history by losing that intoxicant and went on to other intoxicants with consequences to be evaluated. It's that, but it's more, because psilocybin had a very, very peculiar effect over and above what I've mentioned so far, and it is this over and above effect that makes my theory so controversial and so uh, and academics, I think, so phobic of it, because it rips open a whole can of worms and this is the problem all um, primates clear back to squirrel monkeys and old world monkeys all primates form dominance hierarchies this means that the sharp fanged hard-bodied young males control everybody else the women the elderly the sick the children homosexuals everybody finds their place somewhere in this dominance hierarchy run by these uh, dominant alpha males we are no different Uh, we also as we sit here this evening operate under this kind of a social organization I mean we complain about it we analyze it we are aware of it but we live under it it's how it is So here is my suggestion that what psilocybin did was it changed behavior. It interfered with primate behavior. Specifically, it interfered with this tendency to form monogamous pairs and dominance hierarchies. And so the ordinary tendency of the primates to organize themselves that way was interrupted, medicated out of existence, if you like, vaccinated against, if you like, by the presence of psilocybin in the diet, and uh, this over sec- this this overemphasizing or chemical accentuation of sexuality occasioned by the arousal of the psilocybin was sufficient to dissolve the ordinary tendency toward monogamy and replace it with an orgiastic sexual style or they coexisted simultaneously I mean who knows we weren't there it's sort of the way I imagine it is that at every new and full moon, there were group mushroom parties, which basically simply got out of hand <laughs> regularly. And and so the monogamous pair bond would be under pressure, if not completely uh, eliminated. Many cultures have this, even to this day. I mean, in a sense, Mardi Gras is a... A festival where the rules are dissolved and nobody is supposed to go to their spouse the Monday after and say you know was that you I saw dressed as Marie Antoinette and (laughs) uh, uh, because you know the rules are there is permission to break the rules and many societies do this Uh, the result of an orgiastic style like that is men cannot trace lines of male paternity and so there is a tremendous social glue a tremendous uh, force for the cohesion of community, men don't then think in terms of my children they think in terms of our children, the children of the group and under the aegis of this group, this polymorphous polymorphic sexual style, group, uh, child care, and, uh, and extended family rearing, we produced everything that we think of as human, that we value. Our art, our music, our philosophy, our sense of each other's worth, uh, body painting, tattooing, piercing, all the accoutrements that distinguish us from animal existence were put in place when we had a different kind of mind than we have now. We didn't have a mind that favored role specialization and male dominance and anxiety over female sexual activity related to feelings of male ownership. That all came later. We became human beings in this other world of, of values and psychological attitudes problem is that as I say the mushroom faded but by the time it had faded uh... we we were no longer the wordless symbiotes of cattle the, the barely sentient hunters of, of the african plain by the time we were finished with the mushrooms we had language we had social institutions And, but what we began to lose was, you know, you can get as wet-eyed as you want about it, but respect for each other. A sense of each other's individuality. A sense of love. A sense of community. And it must have been, though it happened over a long period of time, very much like what we're living through now. A sense that people are you know, no damn good and getting worse. A sense that, you know, why can't we be as we once were? Where is our sense of each other? Where is our ability to care for each other? So forth and so on. I wrote a book called um, Food of the Gods in which I tell this story in the first third of the book that I've just told you. And then I show that what history is essentially is is a careening out-of-control effort to find our way back to this state of primordial balance one of the things that marks us as humans that is unique is our obsessions with drugs our ability to addict we addict Not only to substances, we addict to each other. We addict to ideologies, Marxism, Christianity, skinkism as practiced in Washington, uh, whatever. Uh, And we addict to each other. You know, I mean, I am a romantic uh, with the best of them, but I can't help noticing that a broken heart and a heroin withdrawal show very similar presentations. <laughs> really. Insomnia, sweating, sense of diminished self-esteem, hysteria. Uh, you know, it's, it's very, very similar. We, so a, a psychologist looking at a person with an addictive syndrome will say, well, you were damaged in childhood. There is some trauma there that you're, you're trying to compensate. You're trying to compensate. Well, I'm not that keen on all this psychologizing, but I do think that we could apply this model to ourselves on a grand scale. We were essentially torn from the Gaian womb, thrust into the birth canal of history and expelled sometime around the fall of the Roman Empire into the cold hard world of modern science existentialism and all the rest of it and uh, uh, we have searched the planet for substances which would assuage our sense of pain and there are things out there you know, alcohol, the whole morphine family, so forth and so on. But these things always have consequences. There's a price to be paid. Uh, the, the very knowledge of psilocybin was lost to the entire planet, except for some tribes in the, in the Mexican mountains, uh, for several millennia until Valentina and Gordon Wasson went in the uh, uh, early 1950s, and found these mushrooms and brought them out, and then Albert Hoffman, who had earlier discovered LSD, synthesized the compound and made it available. That was 55. Well, by 66, all human research with these things had been forbidden. We have, it's not that science mowed this field and moved on. It's that uh, science has never really been here. Uh, we haven't looked at the implications of diet on early human evolution. We don't have a theory. For the evolution of consciousness of any consequence. And yet, you know, the factors I've laid out for you increased visual acuity, an impact on sexual and social behaviors, a triggering of glossolalia like phenomena in the presence of a boundary dissolving psychedelic experience. These are catalysts sufficiently dramatic that inculcated into a cultural style. I think they explain a great deal about where we came from and who we are. Now the the irony of all of this is uh, that we live in a society that has made all practically any discussion of this illegal. Certainly if I were to end this lecture by handing out doses of psilocybin <laughs> I would be gently taken by the elbow and led away forever uh, uh, the Western mind is particularly phobic of this, uh, of this subject. I mean, we have bent our laws so that people can jump out of airplanes in the pursuit of thrills, so that they can bungee cord off major highway bridges and freeway overpasses. So concerned are we to fulfill society's need for thrills. Uh, but this is something else. It provokes all kinds of alarmed reactions and perhaps you believe unfairly. I think that when you examine the situation, it's possible to understand very clearly why this is such a social issue. Because what these things do, if you look, and now I'm slightly broadening my rap to include other psychedelics besides psilocybin, but psilocybin is certainly true in all cases what these things do if you had to generalize a 100,000 psychedelic experiences the ones where people thought they were God the ones where people had to be taken to the ER room and have their stomach pumps the, all of them if you generalized, what, the, what these substances do is they dissolve boundaries they dissolve boundaries if you love it you'll love it if you hate it you'll hate it but that's what they do they dissolve boundaries now the reason this provokes a lot of social anxiety is because all societies are about the maintenance of boundaries it doesn't matter whether you're you know a stockbroker in new york a zen monk in Kyoto a Hasid in Jerusalem your society is held together by boundaries And definitions and anything which dissolves those boundaries and introduces, uh, relativity into cultural modeling is felt to be threatening because we like to believe that our reality is somehow sanctioned, that this is how it should be. But in fact, you know, that's just a a cultural judgment. All cultures think that their culture represents a sanctioned reality. It doesn't. It just represents the current download of their linguistic enterprise. Um, At the core of the Western anxiety about boundaries is something that we are very proud of that we believe we invented, we call it the ego, sometimes we call it the democratic individual. Uh, we say no no Eastern society could have produced this. We took this from the Greeks. We perfected it through the Romans. We brought it up through the medieval period. John Locke and Thomas Hobbes and all those folks fixed it up for us in the 18th century. Thomas Jefferson ironed out the wrinkles. And modern America is the shining example of uh, what you can do if you empower the ego the citizen the individual we want nothing of tribalism still less of collectivism and God forbid nothing whatsoever to do with communism see all these all these things uh, set us going Um, but in fact the ego is appropriate only to a certain point I mean yes we need egos so that when you take someone to dinner at a reasonable restaurant, you place food in your mouth, not their <laughs> mouth. This is, this is what the ego is for. It tells you who pays. <clears throat> um, but in fact, what the ego is, is the return to consciousness of this psychic structure related to the patterns of dominance and the way I think of the ego is it's like a cyst or a calcareous growth or a tumor that gets going in the personality and if not treated it becomes chronic and then there is no cure there can only be you know a certain amount of maintenance and uh, medication of it but it's, it's incurable except Unless we resort to not only non-prescription drugs, but uh, drugs currently illegal. In other words, the psychedelics, through this boundary-dissolving function, dissolve that boundary as well. And so they promote a larger sense of the world than the values of uh, capitalism, competitiveness, object fetishism, Property acquisition and the bottom line in power. So the the issue, as was always sensed since the 60s forward, I think, is not simply a an issue of religious freedom, or an issue of an eccentric minority social practice being tolerated by uh, the majority, the way they tolerate. Handing out pamphlets in airports or something like that. the The issue is, in fact, what kind of of people shall we be, and then what kind of society shall we put in place? And that's why my theory of evolution is not simply a dry footnote on uh, an issue that involves anthropologists, primatologists and biologists, but it turns into a political issue because our unhappy, addicted, ego-driven condition has become not simply the source of our own unhappiness, that was bad enough, but now it's the source of great discomfort and dislocation for all life and human society on the planet. We, we are out of control. We are basically <laughs> severely addicted to things and cannot stop ourselves. Uh, and we know or we should know that there is not enough petroleum heavy metal so forth and so on in the planet to give all the thing addicts all the things that we know they must have in order to be happy we have spread this intellectual virus from pole to pole to Turkmenistan and Barneo to the upper Amazon and to the Tajiks everybody wants kids you know everybody wants the pause that refreshes Uh, What are we going to do about this? Well, so far we've been treating it like an endless garden party. There's no serious plan on the table to deal with this at all. Uh, uh, I, I think that the momentum of human history is pushing us inexorably toward some kind of day of reckoning and in which we are either going to have to turn consciously toward brutality and selfishness and say, well, let India go, let Bangladesh go, triage, costs too much, can't possibly fix the problem. In order to maintain our locked compounds and our 50 channels of television and the endless availability of arugula, we have to let uh, (laughs) India go. (laughs) We're going to have to turn that way. In other words, each consciously participate in a choice to brutalize uh, the human enterprise. Or we're going to have to uh, seriously talk about very major restructurings of our society. And I don't really know how we do that. I was living in Northern California a couple of years ago when they wanted to close an air base near here, and the newspapers were filled with weeks, for weeks, with analysis of whether Western civilization could absorb this hammer blow at the very heart of its institutions of closing one friggin' airbase. for crying out loud. That's not my idea of major change, you know? We may have to give up some of our pretty things. We may have to discipline some of the irresponsible uh, social philosophies that run amok among us. And no, I don't mean the advocacy of psychedelic plants. I mean uh, the Roman Catholic Church's position on population control in the third world. I mean, the Germans take quite a knock for the Holocaust, but the Catholic Church manages to push more people into death, disease, and degradation every year than the Holocaust managed in its entire show. And uh, it's thought rather crass to even mention the fact. It seems to me as long as these Catholic bishops can show their face in public... That we are uh, in complicity with mass murder. It's not pleasant news, but what are you going to do about it? Uh, Islamic fundamentalism. Another bunch of knotheads with an anti-human agenda. What are we going to do about this? Are we going to go gently into that good night of planetary chaos, extreme distortion of class structure, defense of what we have at any cost against those who have nothing? There doesn't seem to be any other plan on the horizon. Arthur Kessler who probably never thought he would be quoted by Terence McKenna, a very conservative character. You'll recall he was a a Marxist who turned on Marxism and led a very interesting intellectual life. He wrote a book 30 years ago called The Ghost in the Machine. And he made a a, a case similar to mine, but a little simpler. He observed human beings are hardwired for homicide this is what we do best because this was something we had to do apparently at some point in our past at least in Kessler's view he didn't believe in a mushroom paradise but he reached the same conclusion that I have which is we need a pharmacological intervention on antisocial behavior or we are not going to get hold of our uh, our dilemma And, uh, I, I, you know, there have been dystopias based on drug intervention on aggressive behavior. You all remember Brave New World, where every time anybody raised their voice, they were given a a gram of soma and told a gram is better than a damn. And so nobody ever had a thought in their head. Well, that's a terrible drug. Let's not introduce that. Uh Uh-oh, the bad news is we've had it for decades. It's called television, you know. We have millions of people in larval, low-awareness lives in their little condominium apartments just ladling this garbage into their minds. The average American watches five and a half hours of TV a day, so imagine how much time these people... Watch. I mean, to to think of that as human at all—if that were a drug, we'd be up in arms. You know, if people were loaded at home with that level of mental condition, <laughs> day after day after day, we would we would do something about it. <clears throat> so my, uh, you know, I don't have, I can't uh, propose a grand solution, but I do think that it is uh, uh, pregnant with implication that here at the end of the 20th century, with all of these problems hammering down on us, the news comes from the rainforests and the deserts that these Aboriginal people, while we made the descent into history and got the top quark and planted the flag on the moon and all that, they kept the faith. And they have a materia medica, a toolbox that can carry us back into a connection uh, with the planet. Now, the question might be asked, why why do you you have such overwhelming faith in what is, after all, a, a substance, a drug? I mean, don't psychedelics just cause you to see pretty pictures and patterns and tally up your gains and losses and then you come down and that's it and the answer is no what is mysterious here and I mentioned it in the early part of my talk what is mysterious here is this thing we call the psychedelic experience those people nailed to the ground around the campfires 50,000 years ago they didn't know what it was and when we go in there, armed with our Heidegger and our Husserl and our Wittgenstein and our merleau ponty we don't know what it is either. There has been no progress in 60,000 years in reducing the psychedelic experience to a known quantity. It is as terrifying, as awesome, as ecstatic, as irreducible to us uh, as it was to them. Well. What is that? As secular people, uh, we rarely experience religious awe, especially of the uncontrollable sort. Uh, I believe that what makes the psychedelic experience so central is that it is a, a connection into a larger modality of organization on the planet which is a fancy way of saying it connects you up to the mind of nature herself. The planet is not uh, uh, just a hodgepodge of competing species. That's the old evolutionary model. That's been obsolete for decades. The new evolutionary model is that where we see species Nature sees only a gene swarm. Genes moving at various speeds, being transferred around, a large percentage of them by sexual propagation, but a large percentage of them by asexual and vegetative propagation, and still others by more exotic uh, methods of propagation, such as go on in the fungi and the bacteria. Uh, The world is a gene swarm. And people like Lynn Margoles and uh, James Lovelock have been suggesting for years that the Earth is a kind of thermostatic self-regulator. Well, if you carry that idea far enough, thermostatic self-regulator is a way of saying a kind of computational engine, a kind of computer, a kind of mind, a kind of mind. The Gaian Mind The reason those mushroom-eating, orgiastically behaving people worshipped a great-horned goddess, the reason they imaged the numinous other as feminine, was because they had a connection into a kind of overarching intelligence that they instinctively and intuitively felt to be feminine. And we retain this in our languages as the idea of Mother Nature and the femininity of the land and so forth and so on. But it's just become a distant metaphor to us. I think our intelligence is, is a source of toxicity to nature and discomfort to ourselves unless our values are based on planetary values are linked to the values of the rest of nature and that means we uh, need to fit ourselves more appropriately into the scheme of things by limiting our numbers, by uh, limiting our extraction of natural resources and toxification of the environment. Uh, We we need to realize that there is a hegemony of life on the planet not necessarily a hegemony of intelligence intelligence is not a license to trample it the the proper role of intelligence in a planetary ecology is that of gardener caregiver and uh, and uh, maintainer of balance well so where do we go and how? what do psychedelics have to say about that? Well, uh, I, I believe that psychedelics show us something which um, capitalist, consumer, fetish-oriented society doesn't want us to know. What psychedelics show us is the incredible richness of our mind that that you little you can produce more art in a 20 minute burst of hallucinatory intoxication than the western mind has produced in the last 500 years our socially created space is incredibly impoverished you know we have picasso's contribution and Pollock's contribution and everybody's contribution, but it altogether is as nothing compared to the richness that resides in each one of us, a half inch behind your eyebrows. We are told, you know, oh well if you want beauty you have to own a Lexus, or uh, you know, if you want a sense of satisfaction then you need a triple car garage, on and on. This is absolutely Uh, not true. These are substitute addictions that will never satisfy for the genuine article and the genuine article is a connection into the Gaian mind. Well, I don't believe or expect for a moment that ever again Naked, tattooed, and joyous, we will herd our cattle across the grasslands of Africa. I mean, there are six million of us. That chance has been blown. Uh, but, but what, what can we do to make, to ameliorate our situation? Well, I, have always been an optimist. I'm more optimistic right now than I have been for a long time because sometimes when you're an optimist, you're an optimist simply on principle. You believe it's going to turn out all right, but you don't see how it possibly could. I'm beginning to see how it possibly could turn out all right. And uh, my notion is First of all, I I follow in my thinking about shamanism, and I follow the great historian of religion, Merci Eliade, who got it almost all right, except that he never embraced psychedelics. He thought they were decadent. But that was just his French, European education, and he came too early. But anyway, Eliade wrote a book called Shamanism, And then he subtitled it, The Archaic Techniques of Ecstasy. Now he wrote the book in French. In French, technique has a connotation that it doesn't have in English. It means both a way to do things and it means technology. Later, the French sociologist Jacques Ulul wrote a book called Propaganda. And the little... Banner under which his book flew which is printed right on the frontispiece is he says there are no political solutions only technological ones the rest is propaganda and then he spends 200 pages explaining what he means by political solutions technological solutions and Propaganda by Ilul's understanding. I agree. I think ideology is toxic all ideology it's not that there are good ones and bad ones all ideology is toxic because ideology is a kind of insult to the gift of human free thinking I mean if you adopt some ideology Leninism Mormonism it doesn't matter then you have all the answers you just go and look in the catechism well I don't know why they issued you a brain they could have just given you the catechism Uh, technology as the counterpoint to uh, ideology is a very different animal now right now we're going through a technophobic phase because people think technology means exploding nuclear power plants and you know, irradiated food and TV. But all technology really means, in the McLuhan sense, is the extensions of man. The extensions of man. And so language is a technology, shamanism is a technology, psilocybin is a technology, and certainly the internet is a technology. It's slowly, I think, dawning on a number of people that if if we're talking about hallucinogens as consciousness-expanding drugs, then the only difference between a drug and a computer is that one is slightly too large to swallow. (laughs) And our best people are working on that problem, even as we speak the drugs of the future will be much more like computers the computers of the future will be much more like drugs and I think what we have to recognize is that we are in a very brief and low energy technical phase in technology basically we're at the tail end of the of the petrochemical steam era and where we are headed is toward the solid state Fiber optic global community of the internet, and uh, I, when I was in San Francisco two weeks ago, the buzz was all about uh, VRML, the virtual language markup, the virtual reality markup language, whose protocols are being set now so that we will be able to build websites on the net that you can put on your helmet and walk around in. Sun Microsystems is about to introduce something called Hot Java, which will let you build and interact with your website without going through your server. Bandwidth is broadening as we speak. Uh, the whole world is being brought into the domain of electricity. And you may not know it, but Marshall McLuhan thought that this was the descent of the Holy Ghost, as a convert to Christian, to Catholicism, he sort of went the opposite direction of me. As a convert to Catholicism, he decided that the descent of the third person of the Trinity and the worldwide spread of electricity were the same event. So, I think that, uh, what we have to do is dematerialize culture in every way possible. And that means pharmacologize culture computerize culture network culture virtualize culture and uh, make of it thereby uh, a tool for the production of our poetic flights a technology for the putting in place of our dreams as exhibits that we can show each other. This is what it is, this is what technology can be in the service of boundary dissolution. In the service of boundary maintenance you get hydrogen bombs and sarin. In the surface of boundary dissolution you get psychoactive substances and the internet and uh, sexual experimentalism social justice, tolerance, and community. And the, the choice is to be made on an individual level by each and every one of us. I don't advocate a mass outbreak of psychedelic use. I think these things are a private matter. They are the only thing comparable to them in our human experience is our sexuality and that's a private matter. How we define it, how we express it, how we act it out, who we do it with, what we think about it, and what we choose to say in public about it is all uh, in our hands. I do not think that uh, the government, under the guise of some phony, alarmist, pseudo-scientific rhetoric, should attempt to control the evolution of consciousness. After all, if these things truly are consciousness expanding it doesn't take too much intelligence to realize that it is the absence of consciousness that is causing our flirtation with extinction and planetary disaster if there is any way to raise consciousness diet, drug, machine Sexual practice, mantra, yantra, whatever it is, we should be furiously exploring and applying it. Because if we should fumble the ball, if we should actually, uh, where our ancestors over thousands of generations did not fail, if we are to fail, the magnitude of the tragedy will be immense because failure is not inevitable. It is not inevitable that we should fail. There are ideas, personalities, technologies uh, available right now which if honestly explored and and implemented could rescue the human enterprise from the disgrace that hovers over us. We don't want this to end in a toxified garbage pit ruled by Nazis which is, you know, the way we may well be headed. Uh, The Gaian mind has always been there. Nature originally through the plants and shamanism provided the tools for us to access this incredible natural database through the vicissitudes of history. Previous generations lost the key in western society since the 1960s the key has been refound it's a matter of great social controversy it's a matter of uh, of of great risk to those who take it how they will be viewed by their peers but there is no longer uh, ignorance is no longer an excuse anthropology in the last 100 years has laid at our doorstep the tools necessary for an archaic reconstruction of uh, society and uh, human values within that society. It's inconceivable that Western industrial capitalism could run on another 500 or 1,000 years. Uh, it, It will not continue as it has. It will deteriorate under the pressure of resource scarcity and what few democratic values we have obtained what little space for reasoned discourse has been created will be the first to be swept away so it's it's very very important that people take back their minds and that people analyze our dilemma in the context of the entire human story from the descent onto the grassland to our potential destiny as citizens of the galaxy and the universe we are at a critical turning point point. and as I say, the tools, the, the data that is, holds the potential for our salvation is now known It is available, it is among us, but it is misrepresented, it is slandered, it is litigated against, and uh, it's up to each one of us to relate to this situation in a fashion that will allow us to answer the question that will surely be put to us in some point in the future, which is, what did you do to help save the world? Well i'll knock off now i'll sign books we'll take like a 10 minute break and then we'll come back and do questions. Thank you very much for your attention faster <laughs> and that in fact. What we are involved in here at the end of the 20th century is some kind of uh, accelerated forward escape into transformation, and I, when I lecture that subject, I more or less imply that it's inevitable. In other words, it's not that we have to do X, Y, or Z, that it's on track. I think it is on track, but I also think there's a place for the kind of politics we discussed this evening, because as the world gets crazier and crazier, a lot of people are going to get very, very anxious. This thing in Oklahoma City is an example of people getting anxious. Uh, So what needs to be done is to spread the idea that anxiety is inappropriate. It's sort of like we, we who are psychedelic have to function as sitters for society because society is going to thrash and resist And think it's dying and be deluded and uh, regurgitate unconscious material and so forth and so on. And uh, the goal and the role then for psychedelic people, I think, is to try and spread calm. I'm very convinced that things are going to get a lot nuttier than they are. And they're a lot nuttier now than they have been for a while. But it, it isn't... It doesn't mean the bad people are winning or that we're going to fumble the ball or anything. The mushroom said to me once, it said, this is what it's like when a species departs for for the stars. It's it's a birth thing. It's complicated. Um, If you had never seen a human birth and you came around the corner of a building in your daily round and it was happening it vibrates medical emergency I mean blood is being shed, tissues stretched, it doesn't you really have to have your chops together to step back and say how wonderful, new life coming into the world. Because, uh, you know, that's not the vibe of it. And I think that's the circumstance that we're in. This is the birth canal to a new order. And at the moment, it looks like suffocation, constriction, limitation, possible death. But uh, we need to inform ourselves and get a big perspective and there's no way to get a big perspective like education and psychedelic experiences if we can see history for what it is it's a it's a 25,000 year nearly instantaneous transition from one state of being to another and yes there are 1500 generations of people who live in that paper-thin transition time. But when it's over, it's over, and we will leave history behind the way you dump a used placenta, I'm sure. Yeah. I
0: wonder, is there any reliable information on the relationship between psychedelics and early uh, Christianity?
1: Reliable information on psychedelic use in early Christianity? The answer is no. I mean, there there is a book by John Allegro called The Sacred Mushroom and the Cross. He was a very respected Dead Sea scholar till he wrote that book. Uh, and that basically finished his career as a classicist. He says some incredibly provocative things in that book to judge whether he's right or wrong you would have to be an Assyrian philologist about which I know nothing so to the lay person it seemed to be quite an impressive book but apparently to his specialist colleagues it was sloppy thinking and a travesty and reason to deny tenure um... St. Augustine was uh, a Montanist before he, no, he was a Manichaean before he converted to Christianity. And uh, he mentions that Manichaeans (coughs) forbade the use of mushrooms, the eating of mushrooms. It doesn't say the use of mushrooms. But the ancient Middle East, we don't know very much about uh, psychedelic sacramentalism. It may have been there. Uh, It may not have been there. Absence of reference is not proof of absence because of cult secrecy and and other factors like that. We do know that, the, or, or we feel we're on firmer ground in saying that the Greek mystery religions emphatically probably were psychedelic especially the the Ellicinian mysteries, the mysteries which were practiced on the plain outside of Athens every year for over two thousand years and everybody who was anybody in the ancient world made the journey to Eleusis to celebrate the greater mysteries which were celebrated in September. Interesting approach to psychedelics there. You could only legitimately participate in the mystery of Eleusis once in your life. So imagine if you had a single high-dose psychedelic experience under ideal conditions, in other words, in darkness, under the care of experts, and then the rest of your life you had to sort it all out based on what happened that one evening it was extraordinarily powerful for the ancient world eventually it was destroyed Alaric the Visigoth who was a barbarian but that didn't stop him from being a convert to Christianity uh <laughs> Alaric the Visigoth burned Lucius uh, on his way to North Africa to burn other things. Yeah.
0: I was wondering, Terrence, if you'd had a chance to read The Emperor's New Mind by Roger Penrose, I think. Uh, It's an argument against the idea of uh, AI, artificial intelligence, and whether you were able to follow his argument, because I would take it that you'd probably be opposed to his argument. I
1: haven't read the book. I like... Roger Penrose's early work, he's saying artificial intelligence is impossible.
0: Yeah, based on, and he goes through the Turing, uh, and I heard you bring it up once. The Turing test. The Turing test for artificial intelligence, and he also uh, brings in the uh, incompleteness theorem.
1: Uh huh. Oh, Girdle's incommensurability thing. a little on A little girdle, please. (laughs) In two-four time? Well, uh, uh, I don't have a particularly strong opinion one way or another on AI. I certainly think computers can be a lot more intelligent than they are before we settle the question of whether they can pass the Turing test. You all know the Turing test is this test Alan Turing was a mathematician, he figured it out during World War II and it's basically if you call X on a telephone and you can't tell whether X is a person or a machine then X passes the Turing test and every year they have Turing tests uh, where judges converse by telephone with computers and people and try and decide which are the computers and which are the people and it's still pretty easy uh... because the people exhibit exasperation incorrect information misinterpret the question so <laughs> forth and so on <clears throat> uh... I, I, there are some wild thinkers out there far wilder than me Of You know, if you want to read a wild book, read uh, um, Hans Moravec's book, Mind Children, The Future of Human and Artificial Intelligence. There's a book. uh, And uh, I'm having a memory lapse here. Help me out, Tipler. I said, help me out with a memory lapse. You don't have to read my mind, for God's sake. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Thank you, Creon. Tipler's book is uh, uh, the end of all speculation where artificial intelligence uh, is concerned. Uh, I think machine-human interfacing is, is very important. I think that the debate about whether a computer can think like a human being is kind of not very interesting. Computers think like computers. Already vast amounts of what we call human society are entirely run. By machines, including uh, very important financial sectors, market decisions, uh, resource extraction decisions, inventory resupply decisions that feed clear back from the warehouse to the mine. In other words, machines say how much tin should be extracted and at what rate, and therefore, to a certain degree, say who should come to work and who shouldn't. On certain days. Uh, A lot of design work of circuitry, engineers will simply tell a computer what the circuit should do and leave the actual architecture of the circuitry to machine decision. Uh, This means, you know, more and more parts of the human world are being over given over to machines to design but when you see how much of the world looks like the arrival concourse of an international airport, uh, having computers design the world might not be uh, a bad idea. Uh, Definitely computers Figure in our future. I mean, I wasn't joking when I said drugs and computers are migrating toward each other. I can imagine a, a world, and this is not the ultimate world by any means, a world five, six, seven years in the future where the equivalent of today's advanced Macintosh would be something you glue on your thumbnail and communicate with that way and you know beyond that lie you know enormous uh... computational and data accessing abilities that may be accessed through implants uh... we're going to have to decide you know how much of the monkey we want to take with us into the future we don't want to take the homicidal killer we don't want to take uh, the male dominator but we it would probably be a mistake to leave the body entirely behind. Uh, After all the body gives us our orientation in the world and our sense of ourselves as somehow co-extensive with animal life but how much of what we call human is really human is going to be a major topic for discussion uh, from here to the end of time. Yeah, in the back. Uh,
0: Two questions on ecstasy. Uh, Number one, what's your take on MDMA and uh, what's the optimum grams to take uh, to achieve uh, sexual ecstasy?
1: Sexual ecstasy on ecstasy? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, on mushrooms. Oh, I see. Well first about MDMA, well there is no doubt that from here to the end of time, whether it be 18 years or a thousand years away, science is going to produce more and more psychoactive drugs. There are psychoactive drugs on the shelf now waiting for human testing and government approval uh, around the world we cannot explore the brain we cannot explore neurochemistry without these drugs being uh, a natural consequence of this program of research MDMA is a cyclosized amphetamine like MDA like mescaline which is a a naturally occurring compound of this type in the hands of a skilled psychotherapist, uh, MDMA leads to conflict resolution, relationship, <laughs> insights into relationships, this sort of thing. I'm not entirely convinced that it's the silver bullet for these conditions. Every drug that has made its way onto the, the alternative culture scene has first billed itself as a love drug. That's an unfailing market ploy to get a drug to the forefront of public attention. Cannabis was sold to us as a love drug, Uh, LSD, psilocybin, Ibogaine, MDMA is no different. MDMA does promote a certain kind of empathy, not a whole lot of uh, vigorous sexual activity. In terms of of what dose of psilocybin leads you into into a, a sexual rather than a visually acute or visionarily ecstatified situation, I would say for a 145 pound person, probably two to three grams is this agitated, sexually active, or if no sex is happening maybe dancing and drumming in other words thoroughly aroused busy active dose as the dose rises you know activity slows and finally you just want to sit down and then finally you just want to lay down and uh, (laughs) then you're into the other phase behind you there was another question
2: yeah, I was going to say that John Lilly has an interesting kind of speculation about the future possibilities of solid state entities in his autobiography of the scientist. But I was really curious what, if you have anything to say or uh, you know about the credibility of the author William Cooper, who wrote a book called Behold a Pale Horse. You know that book? This is the
1: flying saucer debunker.
2: Conspiracy yeah. theory.
1: And isn't he the one who said that he was the CIA guy for a long time? Well, this is slightly off the track or might seem to some people to be slightly off the track. Uh, I don't know William Cooper's book. I regard that uh, whole flying saucer thing as a civil war in a leper colony. Uh, But I do think... I do think... Having been, like probably most of you, very interested in flying saucers from the time I was a kid and I grew up when it was all happening, a couple of years ago I accepted an invitation for the first time to go to a flying saucer conference. If you've never been to one and you're interested in flying saucers, go you will be, you will have more insights into the phenomenon in a conference like that than in 10 years of studying it because what's perfectly clear is that these people are self-selected for gullibility <laughs> <laughs> it's not their fault it's just that the the ticket through the front door is uh, you know would you believe this would you believe this Uh, I, I think probably what happened historically speaking is that you know in 1947 when the first UFOs were seen the it was a weird world the explosion of the atom bomb the work toward the hydrogen bomb, people didn't know Einstein and Truman and all this, they didn't know what it really meant. If they thought that it is conceivable that the solar system is monitored. And it is conceivable that this is the switch which turns on the monitor and brings attention. I mean, they were in awe of the atom bomb and they realized they were tampering with cosmic forces. And then at this moment of cosmic awe and realization of tampering, they begin to get reports of spacecraft entering the skies of Earth and interacting with human beings. Well, what they did... The CIA had just been founded in '48, and so forth and so on. What they did is they put a lot of time and effort into infiltrating all these groups that claimed knowledge of what was going on. And as a survivor of the new left, I can tell you when the government gets interested in infiltrating, I mean, I, there uh, two out of every three members of SDS was a government informant (laughs) at the height of its membership so I believe that what happened was these flying saucer groups were massively infiltrated by the government in the course of its pursuing its constitutional obligation to maintain the public welfare and by fifty-four or fifty-five The government was perfectly convinced that whatever flying saucers were, they did not pose a threat to the integrity of the air defenses of North America. And that was their real concern. But bureaucracies are weird creatures. They really exist only to perpetuate themselves so at some point inside these agencies they must have had to face the fact that they had massively infiltrated a bunch of very flaky people and now their choice was to either end the program tell the budget people that no they wouldn't be needing that ten million dollars this year or keep going with it because they now had a group of people self-selected for gullibility and that group of people became the victims of every chemical experiment, weird technology, propaganda experiment, and so forth and so on, because their friends and relatives had already written them off as completely uh, untrustworthy. Who would believe them no matter what story they told? So I really felt I was among severely damaged people uh, and it, wa- it wasn't their fault. It's that they, they had become part of something that had become part of something that had become part of something. And they never really had a fighting chance. Do strange lights haunt the skies of Earth? You bet their booties they do. But the flying saucer cults are a social phenomenon and largely unrelated to whatever this anomaly is. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Uh, I Doc, uh, Dr. Buckminster Fuller often spoke of the ephemeralization of technology. Do you think there will come a time when we are indistinguishable from our technology, and would that be sort of apotheosis that you speak about in your in the books?
1: No, I think it would go the other way that we're moving toward a time when our technology is indistinguishable from us. In other words, I don't want us to all turn into. Uh, seventy one hundred eighty AV that doesn't seem like a good idea Uh, but on the other hand I could imagine as a hopeful scenario a future world of let's say five hundred or a billion healthy happy well-fed people of all races political persuasions gender preferences and so forth and so on and uh, those people would essentially live as our archaic ancestors did, very little material culture, uh, very nomadic, uh, but if you could transport yourself into the body of one of these people, you would discover that when they close their eyes, there are menus hanging in space. In other words, the computer that was on the back of the thumbnail, five years later that computer moves into being a kind of an implant a black contact lens that is sewn into your eyelids at age six so that when you close your eyes you're actually looking at an interface and the entire uh, database of the culture could be placed there you see really what computers are doing is they're making what we call the collective unconscious conscious. All data, all images uh, are potentially accessible through uh, the network. And, uh, you know, I'm still getting used to the idea of the network myself. Like, I keep thinking, oh, I have this timeline. I could get somebody's chronology and put it at my website. And then I remember, no, no, all I have to do is point to their website. I don't have to copy or move anything. If there is one list that's all the world needs. Anybody else who needs that list can point to it from their website. So the speed at which new structures can be created is astonishing. I mean it almost literally overnight you can build a website and begin to point at other websites and bring resources into yours. Uh, This is a technology which is going to turn out to not be what people think it is. It's going to be a technology for showing each other the inside of our heads, for showing each other our dreams, Uh, you know, one thing I didn't talk about in the main part of the lecture is that psychedelics are catalysts for language. They speed up and catalyze the language formation process. And a culture cannot evolve any faster than its language evolves. And it cannot be any more glued together than the bandwidth that its languages will tolerate and so what this technology that is putting in place is going to mean is the way in which it will dissolve boundaries is by making us transparent to each other. I mean I can imagine a child of the future, uh, we all bring home our drawings to stick on refrigerators and things like that in the future we won't stick them on refrigerators we will stick them in our website and everything will go into our website and by the time we're 25 or something our website will be the size of the American Museum of Natural History and you can wander through it and Uh, As a gesture of intimacy, you can invite someone else to wander through it. Well, that's who you are. It's your imagination. And uh, I think, in a sense, I've said at times that the cultural enterprise is an effort to turn ourselves inside out. We want to put the body into the imagination, and we want the imagination to replace the laws of physics With these technologies, we can probably do that, but it'll have to run on psychedelic design principles or it's certain to be a mess. Yeah.
2: Um, Yes, what could you tell us about the problems that some people experience with the digestibility of the mushrooms and how it can lead to um, pain and and some discomfort and um, sometimes to like a nightmarish type experience?
1: Well, first of all, let me say this there are several mushrooms which contain psilocybin which grow in cow dung what i urge people to do if you're serious about this is to grow your own uh... this is moderately self-serving because i wrote a book about how to grow your own mushrooms but there are many such books you don't have to buy mine you only need it if you want the best one Uh, But uh, you see here, and Stamets's book is excellent. And if you want to go large scale, Stamets' book is the one. But let me say something then. Uh, after the brain, the stomach is the most heavily enervated organ in the body. And anxiety has a way of cropping up as a stomach ache so it's a lot of people have anxiety in the first hour of taking mushrooms and they believe that something in the mushroom is giving them gastric distress it really isn't it's more like a case of butterflies on an empty stomach because you should take mushrooms on an empty stomach Uh, you can try a suppository you can try another drug if you want but there is in this psychedelic business something to be said for simply disciplining your hind brain also you can suppress nausea with cannabis so you know a mixture of self-discipline pharmacological steering uh... so forth and so on uh... if you have if you have a severe reaction to the mushroom you probably shouldn't take it i mean after all it is a fungus and as mammals we have developed some pretty strong uh allergenic reactions to fungi some of us and uh, d- certain reactions to psilocybin are not psychedelic reactions like uh enormous sweating or something like that. That's more an indication of an allergy. If you're going to get into psychedelics, one of the things you have to do is learn your way around. It, psychedelic sophistication doesn't mean you took everything there is in combination with everything there el- else there is at high doses, with your friends, at rock concerts. <laughs> it It means that you figured out what worked for you and then really put the pedal to the metal, you know? Yeah.
2: I recently um, came across David Henson's work on orbitally rearranged monatomic elements and we found that these monatomic heavy metals conduct uh, active superconductors to conduct uh, light and force through our nervous system. Are you familiar with this work at all?
1: No, you, you've stumped the star. Uh, I mean, I, I'm interested in organic superconductivity and room temperature superconductivity, uh, but I don't know his work, so I can't comment on I
2: really it. It's, 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 you said he's going to be coming out with a book in six to nine months called Formus, O-R-M-E-S, Formus, which is orderly rearranged monotonic elements.
1: I'm sure it will find its way to my dad. Now all these hands, oh, he should be the guy, you tell me. All right.
2: Um, How much of our consensus reality do you think is based on um, inexorable physical laws, things that aren't of our own creation, and how much, if any, um, is subject to change without notice simply based on a consensus belief of what should be or what is going to be? How do you think things
1: work? <laughs> well, I mean, this is, you, this is sort of where I'm at. I mean, as you were asking the question, I was my tendency would be to say none, that none of our reality is based on inexorable physical law. But I only want that to be true. I'm not sure it is true. Whitehead used to he had this thing about what he called stubborn facts, And he said, there are some stubborn facts, and you can cut your philosophy any way you want, but if you don't take account of the stubborn facts, you'll have a problem. Uh, A lot of reality is made of language. How much, I'm not sure, but my hope is that a great deal is made of language. Rupert Sheldrick who's a good friend of mine and we sort of think along the same lines he believes that there are not inexorable physical laws that there are just very old habits he would think of the speed of light as a very old habit Uh, uh, these physical constants may be changing we don't know I mean take the speed of light We've measured it on one planet since 1906 and cheerfully extrapolate it to every corner of the known universe with no sense that there might be a problem there at all. Yet, you know, if you're a critic of this, you can look at the speed of light as measured from 1906 and you will notice that the values have been slowly going up it's apparently going slightly faster than it was a century ago well people just dump on that and say no no you poor moron you don't understand it's that the it's that the instrumentality has become more precise and so the measurement may have changed slightly oh yeah Well, it seems to me in that case the points should cluster. How come the more recent ones are faster than the earlier ones consistently? In other words, it's not that we're getting measurements which cluster around a value. It's that we're getting measurements which are going out this way toward faster. Uh, I think language is the key to making reality. I think our language is a is a very weak language computer languages may be more powerful uh, you know VRML or mathematics but I believe the world is made of language that's the magical belief but then the challenge to that belief is okay wise guy so how come the world isn't the way you say it is well <clears throat> that's ungenerous uh, <laughs> I think because it it doesn't work quite like that. Consensus is set by societies, by millions of people. Reality is a phenomenon of many linguistically operating subsystems. Maybe if you and I were stranded on a desert island, we could get a reality going. We probably could, but it would surely be shattered when somebody showed up to take us home again. Over here. Why would I make
2: the only ones that can use the mushrooms? And secondly, is there any written documentation of this mushroom <coughs> paradise? Uh the
1: the documentation uh, well there wouldn't be anything written, of course, it's earlier than that. But the documentation it is well known that the Sahara was wetter in the past, even as recently as Roman times, Pliny called it the breadbasket of Rome. And we know that human populations were out there. We, in the Tassili Plateau of Southern Algeria, there are rock paintings, ruprestris paintings, that show shamans with mushrooms sprouting out of their bodies and, and in their hands. So we have mushroom use, we have evidence of mushroom use at the era of the great horned paleolithic goddess. Um, the, m- the presence or absence of monogamy and polygamy is debatable so i however the the archaeology of this area has not been well studied and won 't be soon, thanks to Islamic fundamentalism. Algeria is no place to do archaeology right now now, to the first part of your question: why was it human beings who ate the mushrooms uh, well we you had to, to use the mushrooms as a doorway to higher intelligence, you would have had to already come a certain distance down the path of higher animal organization. We were bipedal. We had a pack signaling repertoire. We had binocular vision. And the reason we used the mushrooms was because we were under nutritional pressure. Uh, there may have been other animals under nutritional pressure but they may have been more tightly uh, bound to their original diet or they may simply have had behavioral organization that the mushroom couldn't dissolve or break through there has been talk among evolutionary biologists about if there were no primates on this planet what order of animals might occupy the conscious niche or be able to come in there. And interestingly, raccoons are candidates. Raccoons have have well positioned eyes. They have a very complex hand. And um, uh, years and years ago, I used to grow mushrooms in, and I grew them by my own method naturally in jars and uh, i would have waste rye infected with jars and uh, i mean jars infected with mycelium permeated rye and i would put it out on the back porch at night or i did once and i awoke in the middle of the night to this terrific racket and there were raccoons on the back porch they could smell the rye and with the psilocybin-containing mycelium, they could unscrew the lids and plunge their mitts <laughs> into this stuff. And, and as I turned on the lights, I saw these little bandit faces <laughs> with these mycelial crumbs on their little upturned muzzles, and they, didn't, uh, they, don't, they wouldn't back off. <laughs> They would, and the other thing was they were standing up on their hind legs. So they were standing on their hind legs, holding a jar, holding the stuff, and tottering toward me. So, um, I just took one look and backed off. And for the rest of the evening, you could tell that they were approaching uh, the orgiastic boundary uh, because the carrying on the sexual squeaking and squealing and thumping and pounding going on in the back yard was just incredible so uh, you know they they might be interesting test animals uh, to put through this yeah <laughs>
0: Um, John Belay based his passport to Macedonia largely on the
1: fairy uh, faith in Celtic countries, which you obviously are familiar with. I want to uh, have your comments on the numinous nature of the UFO phenomenon with regard to Celtic faith, okay, the Celtic, Celtic faith, and the fairy faith, and the role of this phenomenon, which I think you referred to as, as the other earlier in your talk, has the transformation that you're describing is going through at the present time in the future. Yeah, f- yes, Jacques Vallée was a UFO researcher and the book that was mentioned, Passport to Magonia, was his, one of his earliest books on the subject. He's gone through a lot of changes about it. Yeah. Um, uh, the, the 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 numinous I think what's going on is that uh, in a sense there is leakage from the future Th- this is a broad subject and it's late in the evening so I'll give it to you in headlines but basically science takes the position that nature is without purpose in other words nature has no goal nature proceeds forward according to the unfolding of chance and necessity. But I don't believe this. I think nature is an engine for the conservation of novelty and that the pr- nature's purpose is to generate ever greater novelty uh, and that, in fact, history is the dawning realization that we are about to descend down a very steep novelty sink, as it were, into immense amounts of novelty. And this is why we image the other in the 20th century as the extraterrestrial, because out of the unconscious comes this this image of the other as the extraterrestrial. Uh, I think we are in the presence of what I call the transcendental object at the end of time and that religions call it the Messiah or the Maitreya, secularists call it utopia, millenarians call it something else, mushroom enthusiasts something else, but that we are in the presence of the transcendental object at the end of time, and that it casts an enormous reflection back through history, especially recent history, but any person encountering this backward moving shadow of the transcendental object will attempt to interpret it in cultural terms that they can relate to. So if they happen to be a French peasant in the 11th century, they will assume that it's the Virgin Mary. If they're a sexual scientific rationalist in the 20th century, they will assume it's a spacecraft of some sort. Uh The Celts and their relationship to little people and an invisible world, uh this is a generally held belief that they are exemplifying that is worldwide, which is that the dead are somehow co-present in the space of the living, but invisibly so, except to those who have the gift of second sight or are magically empowered or shamanically (coughs) adept. Um, The last thought I should leave you with this and it's an adumbration of this question but it also has deeper implications the model that you're usually given of the psychedelic experience is a religious model that the mysteries of religion Hindu-Buddhist or something rather, are somehow illuminated by this boundary-dissolving experience. My model is, is a little different, a little cooler, and I think a little more formal. And it's this, that consciousness is an omnidirectional threat detection response.
2: You're listening to The Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time.
0: And yes, I'm wondering just like you are about what came after Terence's comment uh, that he sees consciousness as an uh, omnidirectional threat detection response. (laughs) I sure wish I knew what came after that, but uh, that is exactly where the recording stopped. So uh, if you happen to have a copy of the end of this talk and can uh, either send it or post it somewhere, I'm sure that, in addition to myself, that there are a lot of your fellow saloners who would be most grateful. I guess that I probably should have ended it with his uh, story about the stone raccoons. (laughs) What a great image that was, huh? Well, this has been my longest podcast yet, and so uh, I'll close the program today by reminding you that uh, this and most of the podcasts from the Psychedelic Salon are freely available for you to use in your own audio projects under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 3.0 License. And if you have any questions about that, just uh, click the Creative Commons link at the bottom of the Psychedelic Salon webpage, which you can find at psychedelicsalon.org. And uh, if you're interested in the philosophy behind the psychedelic salon, you can hear all about it in my novel, The Genesis Generation, which is available as an audiobook that you can uh, download at genesisgeneration.us. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends.